0: Welcome to Protect and Serve, the podcast that delves into the incredible lives of police officers across the United Kingdom and around the world. I'm your host, Oliver Lawrence, and together we will embark on a journey to explore the untold stories of those who dedicated their lives to protecting and serving their communities. You may be sitting there wondering why I chose to start this podcast. Well, let me share with you a little bit about myself. I served as a uniformed officer for over a decade. During my time, I witnessed firsthand the immense sacrifices that officers make daily. From confronting dangerous situations to offering a helping hand, their dedication is unwavering. These experiences left a profound impact on me, even after I hung up my uniform. I created the podcast to shed light on the extraordinary work of police officers, not just in the United Kingdom, but across the globe. Each episode will feature riveting interviews with these brave men and women, offering you a glimpse into the challenges they faced, the triumphs they celebrated, and the personal journeys that brought them to this noble profession. But it's not just about the heroic moments, it's about the individuals behind the uniforms. We'll explore their passions, their motivations, and their unwavering commitment to protecting and serving their communities. This podcast isn't about promoting any particular agenda or glossing over the often complex nature of policing. Instead, it's a platform to celebrate the diverse perspectives and experiences that exist within the law enforcement community. We will address the tough questions, engage in honest and courageous conversations, seeking to understand the myriad of roles and responsibilities that come with being a police officer. Whether you're a fellow officer, someone aspiring to join the police, or a curious listener seeking to gain insight into the lives of those who wear the uniform, Protect and Serve has something for everyone. So join me as we embark on this eye-opening journey, sharing stories that will inspire, enlighten, bring a tear to the eye, and create a better understanding of the dedication and sacrifices police officers make to keep us safe. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Together, we'll explore the heart and soul of those who proudly protect and serve. Welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve. And as I say every week, it's another amazing episode with a fantastic guest who spent just over 30 years in British policing, majoritively in the Metropolitan Police, And then for a brief time, as one of the deputy chief constables at uh, Hampshire and Isle of Wight Constabulary. But without further ado, let me welcome Graham McNulty, recipient of the QPM to the podcast. Graham, good afternoon. How are you? Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Ollie. Good to speak to you. And thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. I've been looking forward to this.
0: No, it's an absolute pleasure. And like I say every week, what we do is we rewind back the clock. And Like every good detective, you want to start at the beginning of somebody's story and ask, why policing?
1: So, um, for me, Ollie, I think it was probably inevitable. I know everyone has a different routine, don't they? But, um, uh, my, my father, uh, was in the police for 33 years. He was in Surrey police. And actually I was, um, brought back. My family lived in a police house, um, as was in those times, many people did live in police houses and we actually lived at the back of a police station. So, um, I was surrounded by, by policing. And in fact. Um, My first contact with policing was when I was uh, about two or three, and apparently without permission, I walked into the back of the police station where um, uh, there was a row of shiny police motorbikes. And as any three-year-old would do, I I promptly went up to one of these motorbikes and apparently started putting little stones and gravel in the exhaust. Um, And I was quickly led led back home by by a traffic sergeant who... um, told my mum to make sure that I stayed in the garden from then on but that that was my first experience <laughs> of policing at a, at a very young age. So at
0: what point did you make the decision that you know sort of you've come from this blue blood, your father was a successful career police officer. So obviously that's a massive factor in terms of the decision-making processes you go through. But when you come to turn around to say to your mother and father, it didn't say, but you know, I think I'm actually going to follow in dad's footsteps. I'm going to apply to join the police.
1: What's that first reaction like? Well, um, I, I think to, to be honest, I I I, I went to university uh, in the late 80s and I was studying economics. And if you remember that period, um, Banking and sort of the way the city was progressing was was a, a, a really keen career that a lot of people had, and I really enjoyed my my economics degree. Um, and I actually got a got a job, um, passed an interview, and got a job to go into banking. And then I had one of those moments when I was reflecting: Have, have I done the right thing here? Is this the right thing for me? Um, and I I remember reflecting my dad's career and remember seeing what what he did, and I took a decision that actually. I didn't want to progress with that and I was I was going to join the police and um my dad had always been um Graham do what you want to do do the thing that makes you happy and I'll will support you whatever. Um I think my mum wasn't so happy. <laughs> I think she had worried about my dad being a, a police officer and she was probably worried about me being a police officer but but once she got over that initial um kind of, kind of shock uh, and realized that I was I was serious about it um they both they both got fully behind me um my my dad gave me one bit of advice because I was you know I was thinking I was going to join Surrey Police it's it's where he had been and I I knew people in that organization and I I thought it was a very um good organization I thought the way they policed um but he he sort of said to me I I think you should try the Met Graham I think there just might be a few more opportunities for you there um uh, and and give that a go and I I was surprised Ollie because he had spent his lifetime in that organization but um Uh, Perhaps he knew me best. And um, uh, I I joined the Met and started at Hendon in September 1992.
0: So we talk about a very complex vocation in terms of policing. And I ask this question of all my guests that come on because I'm always very intrigued to understand how people handle the challenges of needing to know a variety of different legislation, policy and procedure And then on top of that, you've got the operational skills and tactics that you have to learn to become acquainted with in terms of how to managing people, the art of effective communication, both sort of tactically and defensively, because the one thing that can get you into trouble as well as out to trouble is your ability to communicate what was that like for a young university student stepping into this very adult, mature environment, this mature world, suddenly taking on all these new skills and sort of knowledge base? Did you find that an easy process and transition or was it something that you had to sort of work at to be successful
1: at? Do you know, I think um, the first thing I would say is I remember really enjoying Hendon, uh, actually, and feeling welcome and feeling part of a team straight away, which 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 was good. And, you know, working as a team to get to get through it all. Um, you know now, when I reflect back, um, was I mature enough at the time? Did I understand enough of life 's issues as a young student graduating and going there? You know the answer is 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 probably not, but I think the organization helped me and equipped me to deal with a, a lot of those scenarios um so they would put you in scenarios at the time and um I think I found the study okay. I, I don't know if you've heard about the, the term white notes. I think that's what we used to call these binders of notes with all the legislation in. Um, and I think I was able to learn that relatively quickly because I just come from that sort of environment at uni. But you're exactly right, Ollie. It's how you, how you put it into practice. You know, um, a, a, as a young person going into a domestic call with maybe two people of the age of your parents and trying to stand there and bring a resolution to that issue and 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 try and prevent it and stop it it's it's really hard when you maybe haven't had those life long experiences yourself that may assist you when you know when you're very young but I did feel walking out of Hendon and the street duties that follow it it did equip me to to deal with those issues albeit it was a it was a really steep learning curve.
0: And, and And graduation is when you pass out at hendon it's always a very proud day for family friends and the individual involved in terms of all the hard work that's gone into either your twelve or twenty eight week training programme to receive that warrant card to be to salute the commissioner of police, whoever that is at the time, and for your family to celebrate in your achievements now coming from a very strong policing family. Your father at the rank of a superintendent. It must have been a very proud day for him to see almost you following in his footsteps and completing what is, as he knows, to be quite a a complex and challenging course.
1: Yeah, I I, I think that day is so important, and and um, you know, we must make sure we never lose sight of that day because my my dad and my mum were certainly incredibly proud of me uh, uh, and what I had done, and you know um. I've lost my parents now, but one of the things they always had on the wall was that picture of me uh, at Hendon with the flags behind me in the in the hall. I think it's the Simpson Hall, isn't it? And um, um, a picture beside them when I come out. And, you know, they were obviously incredibly proud. And that was something they always had on the on the wall. And I think proud of my policing service as 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 I as I went through it. And it's important. You know, it's a huge achievement finishing that training and starting your policing career and I you know I really like the way that the police forces across the country now make that a moment for families who are often let's face it left out of, of, of the policing equation and they're the ones who birthdays missed holidays missed not there at important family events so I think it's really important that the organizations celebrate the families who are the support around our frontline police officers
0: so upon graduation everybody is very keen to get in amongst the action they want to be kind of where it's going to be happening most people want to go west west is best uh you got as we spoke shortly before off air we we're talking about where you went off to a place called spellthorn near Staines, near heathrow airport probably not a location that people be overly familiar with was there sort of an air of disappointment when given a posting of that type because you weren't in what you consider to be the thick of it at the start of your career?
1: I I think bewilderment and uh, not only I but (laughs) most people in the class were saying where's Spellthorn? Um, (laughs) uh, And you know uh, we didn't have uh, smartphones at at that time and I think we were getting out the Geographia and having a quick look to (laughs) to identify where it was and you know, I, I thought this is typical Met police humour when I think I put Charing Cross at the top of my list and there I am, as you say, going west. But um, actually, um, it, it was a good experience for me. But it was a good experience because I met some brilliant people who took me under their wing and really mm. showed me the ropes and they, they were good people. And um, you can do all the training in the world but when you actually land and you have to do stuff, um, you need those great people around you. And I, I had a couple of officers there and a brilliant sergeant who looked after me. Um, and, and in fact, the, the two PCs who looked after me, I was so pleased that they could come to my leaving do uh, 30 years <laughs> later. They have they've both been retired a while. But um, uh, yeah, so Spellthorn wasn't what I was expecting, but it gave me a good grounding and it probably gave me time. To do more involved operations and investigations with people, and and perhaps learn my trade um, with with a bit more time around it, and and so I did enjoy it, but um, you're right, it wasn't it wasn't what I was hoping for when I got to Hendon.
0: So you did what I think classically, I think is fundamentally important: five years in response policing duties in terms of really getting to understand the trade, the mm-hmm. vocation, the ability to communicate with people in a, in, a, in a multitude of different scenarios. You know, it, it's the training is fantastic, but nothing prepares you, I think, for the real-life scenarios when you're sitting in someone's living room, either delivering a death message or trying to resolve a complex domestic issue. Issues sometimes you may not even been sort of aware yourself existed in society. And as you say, trying to come up with a resolution for people that you'd never met before. Was there a moment in those first 12, 18 months, two years, or even in that, those first five years, that you realised, as a result of a particular incident, that policing was going to challenge you both physically and at times emotionally in terms of what you're exposed to. Yeah, I, I,
1: I think there were probably a number of occasions during that period when um, it, it dawns on you just how serious it is and the implications on the individuals that you're you're dealing with. And um, you know, I can I can remember a call you know, of all times a Sunday early turn and I was probably making the tea as the probationer and um, uh, it was a call to a man who had, who had hurt his wife and run the London Ambulance Service and um, uh, they had called us and we responded on on a, on a Sunday morning to this quiet residential street um, to, to a man in a, a, a dressing gown who was standing in his front garden, you know, no one else around. It was about 6am. It had just happened on changeover. Um, and you know, without going into the detail that that individual had, had, had murdered his wife. He was, he was convicted for that. Um, fortunately the children were safe in the household, but you know, they were getting out of bed and up as we were dealing with it. Um, you know, and horrific, horrific situation. Um, and just great for me that, um, I was with experienced colleagues who 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 were with me and helping me and supporting me in 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 that environment, you know. But it's it's a job on that day for me, but for that family, the impact the impact on the children um, and everyone else is just is just so significant. And going to events like that, and perhaps fatal road traffic accidents, and you know, delivering those death messages, which are so difficult, it does. it it does make you grow up quickly it does make you realize that you know as well as you may have along the way enjoyment and fun and learn these are really significant issues and you don't really forget about those types of jobs
0: did you have the skills and abilities in the early part of your career to be able to compartmentalize the exposure to sort of stress and emotion you know going to such scenes of devastation is quite difficult to sort of process in terms of this sort of it's, it's not a normal event for people to go to and, and ultimately people are turning to you to help resolve the issue what is incredibly complex confronting you've got emotional children and family members who are changed forever as a result of it you know we we often talk about the impact on mental health that, and by today's standards there's a lot of support mechanisms in place to support officers that are struggling and when you look back historically the 80s and 90s mental health was something that wasn't overly talked about a lot because i think people were concerned about what did that mean for me as an individual and how would that be interpreted amongst my colleagues how did you sort of process those difficult incidents and cope with the stress i imagine your family would have been a good sort of venting board for you
1: yeah i mean it's it it's a it's a difficult one you're right the the provision now is is so much better and has improved so much and and so it should because you've got to invest in your people and protect your people and if you if you can't do that, then how can you expect them to go out and deal with these um, issues which can have a big impact on them I mean to be honest in those days, it was mainly um, talking to people on your relief that's you know that's what we would call the unit the team um, uh, and and they were good, you know, it was unofficial, maybe it was down the pub on occasions a few times afterwards to try and um, get it out of your system before you go home, and obviously some of the things you see you don't really want to talk about at home, because, um, it, it, you know, it, it, it can be traumatic for people, um, but I, what I will say is, I, I did feel I was looked after, and I do feel people helped, and I do feel people kept an eye out for me, um, and I felt part of the team, and that that helped um of course what you have now in terms of counsellors and occupational health and other professionals who can really unpack some of this stuff and support people is was probably desperately needed back then but to be honest i i don't think people had had thought about it then
0: and then your next you know you do your five years and then you head to probably what could, could be considered quite a confrontational based unit in terms of public order and supporting boroughs in terms of the the being able to bring back a level of sort of peace and good order when something goes bad, is the TSG the Territorial Support Group, you know, a carrier, you know, full of incredibly brave men and women who jump out at a moment's notice to deal with sort of violent issues or, or submerse in a particular area to to help with something going on. What 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 was your sort of desire to get into that area? It's it's quite a it can be quite a volatile area to work in at times.
1: Um, I think. Um, uh... You, you know that I obviously wanted to perhaps be in the more challenging areas of London and and so I uh, left Spelthorne and decided to go to TSG because I thought it would give me a wider understanding of London and um, Ollie, some of my friends had left where I was policing and they'd gone there and they told me how, how they enjoyed it um, and you know it, 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 I thought I'm going to see so many more different things, so many more different locations and you know, at, at that time, it, it wasn't just public order, it was crime operations, it was supporting um, lots of other issues. Um, and I, again, I, I really enjoyed it. I went to Barnes in southwest London, but we were effectively working mainly in uh, Lambeth um, and areas like like that in that quarter of London. Um and, and probably as well as when I first dealt with more diverse communities, seeing um, communities that were, were different from the one, one at Staines. Um, and again, a, a massive learning curve for me um, in how, you know, in some areas you did have to react really quickly. You did have to deal with things really quickly. Um but we were well-trained, well-supported, and I was a lot fitter than I am now um, in terms of doing those shield runs at Hounslow Heath that I, I remember we would we would go and have to qualify, I think it was every month or whenever, as a, a um, public order-trained officer. And, of course, at all the football at weekends up in central London, escorting football supporters through London and getting in and trying to stop things early on before they develop. And I have to say... Uh, I was with a really good team who who I think, actually, although you think the TSG is big numbers, what they bring quickly is the ability to stop something in its tracks quite quickly before it develops into something really big that's beyond the control of um, police officers uh, uh, locally. And um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed a couple of years there um, uh, working with them. Um, I'm not sure I could go back there now and do it <laughs> in, in, in the same way. But, you know, it's good that, the TSG is still going and still operating across London and still helping lots with lots of critical issues.
0: So between 94 and 97, you have the stint at TSG and then you move across to Tooting between 97 and 2000 as a uniform sergeant. What what, what stage in those sort of first five, six years did you realise that sort of leadership was something that you admired and something that you thought you could either do better or you could you could achieve or do what those that you were leading you the skills they had you had that too is it something that you desired early on
1: i think um i i it, it's interesting because i think you can read the theory and you can go on the courses but until you've actually got your own team and you work with them um you, that's when you really learn yourself and it's it's about putting them before you it's about thinking about their development and how you support them and how you can make your team more effective as a unit and, and, and work together. Um, and I was relatively young in service. Um, and it, it yeah, it was, it, it was difficult because you were, you, for the first time, you're not, you're not just thinking about yourself and your immediate peer group. You're thinking, how can I improve the position of my team and support my team, um, and, you know, wanting them to grow and develop as well and looking out for them because there were people in my team who were thinking about promotion or thinking about going into a, another specialist role. Um, and it brings along a whole new skill set, but also a lot of common sense in terms of supporting those individuals in in their development journey and having honest conversations with them. You know, I, I know we talk about a PDR once a year that you fill in and it kind of grades you know, your view of your performance of that individual. But let's be honest, it's about daily interaction. It's about going to jobs with them so you can see them at jobs. Um, it's about working with them. And on occasions it's about saying, no, you can't do that. Well there's a better way of doing it. Um, but that that was a a, a huge learning curve as a sergeant. I, I think it's a it's a big jump for most people in the organisation.
0: Was your leadership tested during that period? You know, we we look at between 94 and 2000, we'd had the tragic homicide of Stephen Lawrence and then the subsequent inquiry that came out from McPherson, you know, with the Met being labelled as institutionally racist and there being all these significant issues which the Met was really trying to grapple with. Support so Condon, Lord Condon now, was in charge of the department at that time. Was that a difficult period to be a sergeant? You're on the front line having to sort of demonstrate good leadership and, 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 and equally try and manage the levels of morale, which I would imagine would have been challenged during that period.
1: Yes, you you were you were right. There was a there was a lot going on and uh, a lot of criticism towards the organisation. And um, you know, let's be honest, some of it really justified about the way in which um, Stevens' murder was 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 dealt with. Um, and I I I felt you know it's good to talk. It's best to talk with your people and hear what they're saying and understand their position. And you know you you know from some police officers it. it, it would have been, I had nothing to do with this case, I I wasn't even in the police when it happened, but explaining to them so that they understand the impact that it did have on communities in London. And although it was a dreadful and horrific murder, and you can only feel for the family and what they must have gone through, actually the response in terms of the way that we looked at our murder investigations... The way that we got family liaison officers um, uh, appointed and, and engaged and involved, how we improved lots of our internal procedures to deliver better for the public. Actually, a lot of good came out of it, but but all of us would wish that you know it happened without that tragedy having having had to happen. But when these issues are big and in the media, your team are reading it, seeing it, talking to their family about it. So you're better off. Having those discussions with them in the workplace and trying to help and support
0: you you, you then move uh, after that period very much into more um, complex crime in terms of working on crime squads uh, you 're at Wandsworth, which is where you then take on that first commissioned rank you know as a di at Wandsworth in a crime squad sort of that's quite that, that's the first sort of big jump you know in terms of first commissioned rank um, in terms of how people perceive you how you start to manage you're really starting to define your leadership style as to kind of how you want to be perceived and how you're going to go about making positive change and ensure that you can get the most out of your people um, what was that progression for you like and especially moving into that that crime squad field of more detailed investigations more complex crimes was that something that really sort of um, fulfilled you
1: yeah, it was it was something I had wanted to do. So I'd been working on robbery and burglary operations as a sergeant and working a lot with the CID um, and really enjoying it, to be honest, and getting a lot out of it. And, you know, I suppose... One of the things that I wanted to do when I became a police officer was to um, really focus on those individuals who were causing a lot of grief in society and breaking into people 's houses and robbing them you know totally unacceptable and they 've got to be dealt with um, so I wanted to do it, but it was a big jump and it was a big change um, and probably one of the biggest jumps actually i 've had in my career and I look back ollie i think you 're right that that change there was the one that um, probably impacted me the most and you know then in those days um you were on call a lot you were responsible for what happened on the days that you were on call um a lot of phone calls in the middle of the night and um a lot of critical incidents uh, uh, across the borough so it 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 was a real step up for me and i think i was helped a lot in my early years there was a there was another di at wandsworth far more experienced been there a long time who really, you know, I could go to as a sounding board and helped me with a lot of those decisions. And as as ever, you know, often there's not a right and a wrong answer. Often there's a loads of shades of grey in the middle. Um, but having having the opportunity to talk to people who've been there and done it, and they can relate to you, um, help and support. Plus as well, I had a lot of good DSs and DCs who were very supportive and helpful. That, that really helps you throughout your career and it helped me then and you know I would say often people say who was the people who sort of in your career drove you or the inspiration well actually often it was people of a more junior rank it wasn't just the senior officers but it was it was people who within my teams who you know were really able to help and support me as well.
0: One of the greatest challenges that has faced policing since going back to the pills days is. Serious and organised crime, you know, groups of people um, with a combined effort to to cause real disruption and to financially benefit from that disruption. And and within serious organised crime, often to be able to Deal with these individuals and to hold them accountable and to make sure that they receive the appropriate penalties and they get through court and and we're able to punish them appropriately and make sure we don't see them for some time whilst they're incarcerated is the is the witnesses that come forward and bravely sort of put themselves forward to provide statements and give evidence as to sort of the activities of these nefarious individuals. You spent quite a considerable amount of time in, in, in the Witness Protection Command in terms of supporting some of those vulnerable individuals in giving them sort of the support they need to be able to support often quite complex investigations for SIOs. Can you tell us a, a little bit about sort of the purpose of Witness Protection and your time there in terms of the challenges of working with people that were incredibly vulnerable?
1: Yes. So I, I went there in 2003 and it was probably my first sort of Scotland Yard um, unit that, that I joined. And um, it was a real eye opener for me in terms of, you know, serious and organised crime is, is, um, it is a business, albeit an illegal business. Um, uh, and they have the resources and the ability and the connections to protect themselves and protect their organised crime groups. And to stop harm in any way coming to them, and that harm includes interrupting the criminal justice process and trying to um, stop uh, prosecutions in their in in their track. And they will do anything and anything within their power um, to do that. You know, these people don't have a code of practice; they don't have a rule book they have to follow. Uh, they can do whatever they want, and often they're they're very well funded to to do that. And so. Um, The Criminal Justice and Protection Unit, to give it its formal title, but everyone called it Witness Protection, um, was incredibly important because um, it supported the criminal justice system. And those individuals who are very brave and come forward and give statements, sometimes in the most tragic of circumstances, we need to as a society and as a police service, we need to be able to protect them so that they can give their evidence in court and then, you know, be safe in the future. Uh, knowing that there's going to be no retribution. It's almost a cornerstone to um, the criminal justice process. So um, that was for me then as a a relatively young DI in, in, in London, seeing how those groups operated, but also then getting a lot of heart out of the way in which we had a professional response to deal with them and hopefully allow them to live their life, albeit, of course, um, you know in a different location and sometimes in a different identity depending on the threat and risk against those individuals so um, it, it also showed me what the organization can really do when it's up against individuals who possess a, a real and ongoing um, threat to these individuals and critically important that that we um, that we have that you know and in those days it was you know the Met were were probably one of the biggest units in the country but there's now obviously a national system but it didn't exist back then so it was probably a bit a bit harder drawing it all together and bringing it all together but again a great group of people really determined to look after their witnesses to support them through the process and you know that was a a long relationship, a long time of supporting them,
0: there are so many different areas of policing that one can be exposed to throughout their career that the job has got so many different opportunities, and obviously witness protection being one of those, it must be quite a it must be a very rewarding area of work in terms to know that you're playing your part in the piece of the jigsaw puzzle, in helping SIOs who are often under a great deal amount of pressure to ensure that they get everything together, they have all their evidence together, they have their witnesses all prepared, they have them ready to go to ensure these people are held accountable. And you're playing your small part in that to ensure that that all comes through completely. It's an incredible team effort.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, those SIOs have got so much to do anyway, so much to bring together, you know, having total oversight of the case and leading it. Um, you know it's right we played our small part in supporting them with maybe a crucial witness Um, and there's a whole host of people I think I think sometimes a lot of people have forgotten but the people who work in forensics the family liaison officers um, you know the witness protections teams there there's a there's a whole group of people um, and I could go on and on the media teams who do an incredible job as well in difficult circumstances to support that SIO to get the case to court and you know my reflection on policing as you look back is where we have our best results it's where we have a real team effort and everyone pulling together um for the common good
0: another often uh, un sung area of policing that pe- I, th- I don't think people realise the impact that sort of the Met and other organisations have is when we have disasters and issues that occur around the world where there's, an- where there's uh, British expats either involved or suspected of being involved in sort of a mass casualty event and how that's managed here back at home in terms of not only supporting the families but ensuring a sort of a smooth repatriation of that individual so that families have closure, they're able to grieve and, 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 and coroners have an understanding as to what has happened to an individual to lead them to, to the position they, they found themselves in quite tragically. You've held the position of a senior identification manager responsible for supporting uh, DVI officers and, and you've taken part and led on some quite very complex matters which have occurred overseas. Um, are you able to sort of give us a, a rundown as to sort of that role and, and some of the bigger matters that 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 we may be aware of that you've taken part in
1: yes so um you know it's it's difficult isn't it these mass casualty events they're tragedies and um the events happened and you know what we need to do in policing is play our part to support the families support the coroner hopefully hopefully provide some dignity and death through that process um and and Find the evidence, find the individual uh, and get them back to their family so that they can have a burial and start the grieving process. Um, uh, and I, I first got involved in this world, I, I think I did my course in uh, the autumn of two, 2003 um, with, a, with a load of other uh, detectives at, at, at that time. Um, and to be honest, when I was doing the course, it was it was a world I did not know uh, much about. Um, I learned about anti-mortem, post-mortem, the processes that are used. Uh, we did case studies. We worked on, on different areas. And as ever, thankfully, and particularly in the Met, um, there are some people with real deep knowledge and expertise who, who can help you. And, um, I found that course really eye-opening and it but but if I'm honest on it's one of those courses you do it and you think I pray I never have to use this 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 skill set you don't want to have to use it because it means something very bad has happened um, and literally a few months later I was at home and I got the call as did lots of others over the Christmas period uh, about the tsunami which impacted in the Indian Ocean and particularly affected Thailand but also a lot of a lot of other countries and. You know, my, my first thought is, why are we being called? And then you start to realise, hang on, there's 10,000 British nationals in the area. Um, there's huge devastation. Um, I think the, the final figure was well over 200,000, nearly quarter of a million people lost their lives. It's coming
2: again! Coming again! Big one! Back up! Oh, my God! Get inside! Get inside! Come on, guys! OK, I'm getting frightened now.
1: The terrifying sight and sound of nature's fury, the giant tsunami. Good evening. It was the day that death came from the sea. Tonight, the full horrific scale of the disaster is unfolding. Over 25,000 are dead, and hour by hour, that death toll rises. 13 are British. We now know the wave was triggered by the world's strongest earthquake in 40 years, nine on the Richter scale. Tonight, in this special programme, our correspondents have eyewitness reports from across the devastated region. Coastal villages, paradise islands and tropical beaches turned hell on earth um and then you start to sort of click in your head clicks and well what do we do where do we go go from here and I I I should say I know a lot of people just went onto the plane and went over there to try and help and support and you know from talking to colleagues who did that the circumstances in which they were working in were were horrific and they, they were doing their best but I my job was to uh, work with the coroner, Alison Thompson, at the um, Fulham Mortuary. That's where we were we were based, and just um, get everything ready so that we could do the post-mortems when people came back, present the evidence to the coroner, and then allow families, you know, to get on to get on with the grieving. And um, you 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 just again, I've talked about team, and I I, I don't wish to sound boring, but over that. Christmas period we 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 doubled the size of the mortuary um property services came in life had moved on we talked about um support to officers well by now occupational health were there to support us you know um catering every everyone came in to help that operation um and make it happen in a very small period of time uh, we got the system set up and I think we started our first post-mortems on New Year's Day. I think I think our first one was sort of 8 a.m. on New Year's Day. And I and the team sort of worked around the clock and worked through with the staff who were in the mortuary, who 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 were brilliant and helpful and supportive. Um, and you know, we just wanted to do our best. We, you know, when I reflected on it, these people were overseas, many of them are on holiday, calm, tranquil environment celebrating the festive season, maybe the holiday of a lifetime for some people. And then within a few seconds, waves up to 100 foot had come through and destroyed the area. You know, and not only obviously tourists, but many local people lost their lives as well. And it's hard to imagine that, isn't it, when you reflect on it? what on earth could that have been like and so you know we wanted to play our small part in the best way we could in trying to support those individuals who were desperately trying to get information about their families and then have the bodies repatriated and then wanting this process to be over so that they could start the grieving period but um, yeah that was that that was a case that you, you know you don't anticipate um, but that training was was good and it you know it kicked in and, and we all got on with our job.
0: I had the the honour about six months ago to uh, interview former Sergeant Jill Williams from Thames Valley Police, who was one of the deployed officers to Thailand um, to do the disaster victim identification and recalled this surreal experience of just being surrounded by containers and containers full of victims of this horrific event. And as you quite rightly point out, waves of 100 foot, you you just can't imagine what must have been going through people's minds to see that coming towards you. It must be absolutely terrifying. But... As, as somebody that's then managing people in such a difficult environment of trauma, is it not only your job to make sure that things get done well, but equally to identify people that may be struggling to comprehend what they're dealing with in terms of their exposure to these unpleasant scenes of, of death?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is part of your job. And I would say not just as leaders, I, 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 you know, I think your peer group, your people, you're watching out for the people who are the same rank as you. And, um, yeah. you know, we talked about events earlier on in my career where probably we didn't have the systems and processes in place. Um, then I would say I actually think we we did, and they were available, and we were watching out for each other, and just just the hours and the amount of time spent in that environment. You know, there were days when it was just good for people to go away and and not be involved mm. for a while, and it was you know never a problem to be able to say I I you know I think I need a break or I think I need a bit of time out. Um, we were we were put up in a hotel opposite the mortuary, which actually I think was really helpful because going home after that every day, after day after day, and then having to come back in w- w- would have been really difficult. But we were on site, we were local, and you know we were together and we had support with us. And I I think that was definitely the start of the Metropolitan Police really getting its act together in terms of trying to support people and put the help that they want in place be that just a chat with someone or or be it perhaps needing more more intensive help and support d- during that period I, the 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 one good thing i would say is that um the officers who do that work are volunteers and have yeah. you know, want to do it um and have thought about it and have been through the training and you know i i still maintain that when we put people in that position we should, be, we should be seeking volunteers for that type of work because, you know, it's, it's, it's not right for, for everyone or, or for a period in someone's life, it just might not be right if they've had a bereavement or they've had a bad time. Um, it doesn't mean they can't do it in the future, but it's making sure at that moment when people are having to do that work, they feel like they're able to do it and they feel like they're supported. And always being able to put your hand up and say, um, it's been a difficult week, you know, I think I need to step back
0: one of my second interviews for the podcast was was with a chap called Sergeant Matt Calverley, who was in the Met for a number of years. And Matt recalled that after the tragic events of 7-7, the Met realized that it needed to have a better process in terms of having an array of officers qualified who could assist in terms of these mass casualty events. And um, as you say, these are volunteer roles that people put themselves forward in case they're needed, and that skill set is needed to sort of support in that process. And And he recalled that when the advertisement went out looking for officers that would be interested in taking part on this, that there was about 5,000 people put their hands up to come forward and to be trained and to take part in that process, which is an incredible amount of people that are willing to, to stand up when needed at probably what is an incredibly difficult time, which I think just goes to show the degree of resilience and the type of people that are in policing in terms of their commitment to public service and to service and to, and to support people really at the darkest times in, in what can be a community, what a community goes through.
1: Ollie, I, I think you're spot on, and I've seen it throughout my service that people are willing to go above and beyond to try and help people you know the, the, there were people there families going through imaginable hell you know no communications not getting any information maybe getting you know that news through that their loved ones being been found but unfortunately their life has been lost um none of us can ever put ourselves in their shoes and imagine that but what we can do is try and do our very best to bring dignity to death and try and support them through the process. And I'm, I'm not saying we got it perfect. You know, you, you learn in those operations. You, you, I, I learned loads, you know um, but the willingness of people to try and help, to try and support is, is immense. And, you know, people wanted to be there, wanted to do the work um, and wanted to, wanted to help. And and I, and I think we all felt that way. We could play a small part um, in, in that, huge tragedy
0: there are a number of pressures that we face as police officers it's very different varying different ranks and levels and seniority and sometimes we're asked to carry out tasks which can very much make us think crikey am i the right person for this job this is an unusual task i've been asked to carry out you know sort of managing a team like that is one of those but another one i wanted to reflect on quite quickly without having to go into great detail when we look at operation ribble which was the cash for honors investigations you know difficult for us to talk too much about but i just wanted to understand in terms of sort of exposure and expectation and doing something interviewing a prime minister tony blair on three occasions that must be quite a pressure pot environment quite a surreal situation to find yourself in as a senior officer being asked to carry out such a such a task how do you handle that and how do you manage those challenges
1: tonight the bbc understands there will be no charges in the cash for honors inquiry no one will be prosecuted after a lengthy police investigation that targeted some of those closest to tony blair we'll bring you the latest on this developing story and how an investigation lasting over a year has come to nothing well, um, those those are things you don't expect to do when you're at Hendon and you're uh, arriving there with your rucksack. Um, look, I'm, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be involved in a lot of high-profile investigations through the places I've I've worked at Scotland Yard over the years. But um, you know, I've I've always taken a, a a position that when when you do an investigation, it's kind of like a long corridor with a load of shut doors, and you don't know what's going to happen during the course of the investigation. Um, and of course at the end of it 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 may be that you know no offences were committed or or it may be that you know people are charged and there's a case that goes to court but um, I've always been of the mind follow the evidence without fear or favour. Those types of investigations that you just mentioned they're really difficult because not only have you got the crime writers writing about them but you've got all the political journalists writing about them as well and they are undertaken in the scrutiny and the spotlight and everything is upon you which actually when you're an investigator you you clearly don't want that you want to be able to work away quietly in the background and gather information and present it to the CPS and work out whether there is a a case there or not but that that was um a, a surreal environment i you know we've got to make really clear here that that we did the investigation we presented the case to the crown prosecution service um and there were no charges on the end of it but um you know, being in that position and having the media looking at what you're doing is is really difficult. And um, you know, in today's world for police officers, they they get a lot of that all the time, don't they? When I joined, there wasn't body worn video, and there wasn't telephones with cameras on, and everything didn't go viral within seconds. Um, but you know, we see we see now young police officers doing their job, and then suddenly. Um, there they are, the centre of attention. And they certainly weren't asking for that, were they normally? They just want to get on with doing their job and doing their bit. But um, fortunately, by the time I dealt with that investigation, I'd, I'd had a long time in the organisation and I'd sort of learnt to perhaps try and manage the scrutiny that, that comes with it
2: tonight, breaking news from
1: Westminster in the Cash for Honours inquiry. Police have been conducting a lengthy investigation into whether wealthy businessmen were offered peerages in return for donations to the Labour Party. We can join our political editor Nick Robinson in Downing Street. Nick, what more can you tell us?
2: Well, the Crown Prosecution Service will make their announcement tomorrow at the end of a 16-month police investigation. They refuse to confirm formally that they've reached their decision but my understanding is that they have, and lawyers met with senior police officers yesterday to talk about this in great detail. And the result is that no-one, yes, no-one, will face charges after this long investigation. This, of course, will come as a huge relief to three people who came close to the former Prime Minister, Tony Blair. First of all, of course, his chief fundraiser, Lord Levy, who was arrested on suspicion of perverting the course of justice. Also, Ruth Turner, his Director of Government Relations when he was in Downing Street, who was also arrested under suspicion of perverting the course of justice. And finally, one of those many who lent a great deal of money to the Labour Party, the businessman Sir Christopher Evans, also arrested, and if it is confirmed tomorrow... Will be waving uh, goodbye to all the and, we, anxiety, and we
1: talk
0: about we'll big moments in the Mets' history. And if we look between 2009 and 2013, a period where you were with the Serious and Organised Crime Group, and then you moved into support as staff officer to Lord Hogan, Sir Bernard Hogan Howe, now Lord Hogan Howe. You're looking at a period of policing which, again, was a difficult period in the Mets' history in terms of the incident with Mark Duggan. Uh, which resulted in the 2011 uh, large scenes of antisocial behaviour, not only in London but across the United Kingdom. In steps Sir Bernard.
3: Uh, Home Secretary, Mayor, uh, ladies and gentlemen, just to say first of all thank you for the great honour that I've received in terms of being selected as the Metropolitan Police Commissioner. Professionally it's the highest accolade that any police officer could have. Secondly, I'd like to pay tribute uh, to my predecessor Sir Paul Stevenson and the achievements that he made in his time here including reducing crime. I also want to pay tribute to the other people who applied for this job, uh, particularly to Tim Godwin, who over the last year has helped to keep the Metropolitan Police uh, in a really uh, clear and focused place. And finally, just to say a few words to the people of London, which is that I intend to lead the Met so that it makes uh, criminals fear that it keeps the uh, trust of the, uh, the public of London in the Metropolitan Police. And finally, the Metropolitan Police, so the Metropolitan Police officers and staff, proud of. And now I'd like to go in and start work, uh, but particularly to remember that the idea is to make the criminals fear the police and what they're doing now and make sure that they are uh, stop and committing crime and will reduce crime over the coming years. Thank you
0: very much. There is no greater challenge and I think no greater exposure to the significance and the workload of the Chief Officer of any force, whether it be a home county or the Met, in terms of their work ethic, the amount of hours they work, their commitment and their real desire to make a change and a difference to an organisation. What was your exposure and time like with the then Sir Bernard Hogan Howe as the Commissioner of Police, as his Chief of Staff?
1: So um, I, I think it's probably fair to say I'd, I'd done an operation in Merseyside previously actually for a few years. So um, I had got to know the Chief Consul Merseyside, who was then Sir, Sir Bernard Hogan Howe, Bernard Hogan Howe um, and worked with him up, up there. And um, that, that investigation concluded and then he became the Commissioner of the Met. And... Um, so he contacted me and said, would, would you like to be my staff officer? And I've, I've got to be honest on it, because I was leading the Serious Organised Crime Command at the time, probably one of my most favourite postings in my my 30-plus years in policing. Um, I didn't really want to leave it, if I'm <laughs> if I'm honest, um, because I was enjoying it so much and the people were fantastic. Um, but I did realise I probably needed to do a role like that. I, I hadn't been a staff officer before, Um I, I my roles have been operational throughout my career. I'd never done anything like that, and in in hindsight, I'm I'm really pleased um, that that I did it. It it, it was um, as you rightly say, we just had significant disorder, but we had the Olympics coming up, we had Jubilee celebrations coming up, and I remember thinking to myself, this is going to be a really really interesting year, and it and it probably was in terms of understanding. Um, the pressures placed upon chief officer teams, seeing the politics, you know, um, and how that plays out. And just again, you know, the world's media were around with that, uh, in, in that year. And I, I have to say, um, the work ethic of these individuals, what people don't see behind the scenes, their presence, you know, at, at Scotland Yard, around the whole organization, in front of the media, um. I thought I worked long hours that 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 year I was in very early and left late but you know um the commissioner certainly worked a lot more um and the demands and pressures placed upon them and then to see firsthand how they themselves are trying to resolve all that and deliver for London you know a uniquely difficult role and I've been very fortunate to have worked closely with Bernard uh, with with Paul Stevenson who 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 followed um I uh I I work with Cressida and I work with uh Mark Rowley and um you know those individuals worked incredibly hard gave 110 percent um and absolutely committed to to the cause and it's a it's a role I don't think I could do Ollie the 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 pressure's placed upon them all um but to see it up close you really do see um the, the the impact that it has on them all but um Impressive characters who who give one hundred and ten ten percent in that in that time and probably I got to see um, Bernard closest because I was his staff officer and it was a you know what a year um, to be there and a real privilege for me to be part of it and see it and the people that you're seeing and the news headlines every day and the, the the people around them you're seeing them in offices in meetings in critical moments so I I, I probably learnt more in that year. Than any other
0: and what what always intrigues me about that particular obviously you know Sir Bernard has an array of senior officers in his executive team, which each have a responsibility for a particular function of the Met and how it executes its services to the the, the members of the public of London, but you 're in effect in around his space twenty four hours a day seven days a week for the for those twelve months, obviously there's going to be times where he asks for your counsel. What, 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 what do you think in this particular situation, Graham? Is, is there part of that where he's seeking to understand what your views are and how you would execute on a particular issue? And is it a test to see whether you're ready for the next jump up, which is going to be going on the strategic command course at Hill and looking at further promotion for you? Is there, is there equally that sort of, is this a job interview for down the Rhine?
1: Um, I, I think whenever you work, you know, when you're a chief officer and you've got that little team around you, you rely on them so much. I certainly did in my career. Um I absolutely relied on the people around me. And you know, I had some fantastic staff officers who without their help I couldn't have done what I, I did. Um yes, he would he would ask me questions and I would always feel under the spotlight when he asked them, but I, I would always answer them honestly with with, with my view because I had you know, worked in the Met for a very long time. I knew most people, and in in the Met, I think you do rely on the council of that. And he had obviously been away and to Liverpool and worked in other places. Um, but he, he, you know, he definitely did listen. And on occasions, it was good when you heard him say a speech or do something, and you thought, ah, hang on a minute, that's that's my little soundbite right there but you know that's what makes you feel part of a team isn't it that if you work for a boss who never listened to you never asked your opinion and never involved you well that would be pretty demoralizing wouldn't it um I certainly felt part of a team when I was up there and I certainly felt fully engaged um you know and privileged to to be a part of it and learn from it you know at that point in time which was such a critical point in time
0: so we, we leave St. Bernard's office after 12 months and you head off onto the strategic command course at Brams Hill, probably one of... The last courses, which was carried out at Bramshill before it's been moved on, that strategic command course very much sort of establishes the ability to lead at an ex- executive level, provides you with the skills and the capabilities and the opportunities to understand kind of what is next in the leadership journey for you. At this point in your career, when you look back at when you first joined in the early nineties, did you have your eyes set on this particular journey, and where you you know you look back and think? Like yes, I was always probably going to end up here, or had you probably gone further than you'd expected to go?
1: I think I'd always joke with my dad, I've got to beat you, dad. But that was a bit of family rivalry. Um, uh, but I didn't, I didn't have my heart set on a rank, and you know, I I was a conventional entry into the organisation. I wasn't on special course, but um, I I think I took my opportunities when they arose and um i you know when i when i went to bram's hill i I'd, I'd sort of done 4 years as a chief superintendent and i thought you know i'm ready um but whether you're ever ready or not you only know when you, you 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 land um but i i felt i felt it was probably the 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 right time for me um that said i did i did find elements of the of the course challenging and um perhaps Perhaps not the operational policing stuff uh if, if I'm honest to you perhaps more let's call it the the business stuff the way that a business operates um you know the the budgets um the forecasts um understanding all the different parts you know a, a police organization is 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 huge and you have subject matter experts from your legal team, your press team your digital team. Um, your resources team across the whole piece. And I think the senior command course probably opened my eyes more to that element and probably my lack of knowledge in many of those fields um, as opposed to the operational side, if that makes sense, Ollie.
0: No, no, totally. And and I think by the end of that course, did you think you're ready for the next step? Because you go back to the Met um, as commander in charge of homicide, if I'm right, and you know, so we, we look at quite a significant portfolio, one that is often under the spotlight. There's equally a number of big cases which you've taken part in, none bigger than the Alice Gross case. Here's, here's a moment in time where you're front and centre talking to a large press pack of journalists who are wanting to know what is happening with a particular homicide.
1: Good morning. I am Commander Graham McNulty from the Specialist Crime and Operations Directorate in the Metropolitan Police Last night, the 30th of September, a search was carried out at the River Brent as part of our ongoing investigation into the disappearance of Alice Gross. Following this search we have sadly recovered a body from the water. This is obviously a significant development and Alice's family have been informed. We are unable to make a formal identification at this stage but clearly this news is devastating for Alice's family and friends. My thoughts are with them at this time and I would ask you to respect their privacy and allow them some space. This is now a murder investigation and I need the public's help to find out whoever is responsible. I would urge anyone who may know something to come forward. Even if you have not yet spoken out, it is not too late to tell us what you know I would like to thank the local community of Ealing who have shown us huge support and patience during the course of our investigation. This discovery will have a significant impact throughout the borough. You only need to walk around the surrounding streets to see the effect that Alice's disappearance has had on the whole community. Our work at this scene is crucial to ensure we capture all the available evidence allowing us to identify who is responsible for this dreadful crime. This may take some time, and I would ask people to remain patient with us. I can confirm that significant efforts were made to conceal the body. All those
0: skills that have been for taught you, and all your experiences which have gone before, really set you up as to kind of how you're going to lead any critical and, and significantly public-facing investigations like the Alice Gross matter.
3: Finally...
1: Yes, those, those matters. When you're, when you're sort of gold for those investigations and operations, you, you really do feel like you're, you're under the spotlight. And at times you feel a bit like you're on your own. You're not on your own because you've got an amazing team around you, but, you know, it, it, it comes to you. And, you know, that was one of the cases that... Um, and and it, there, was, there was a bit of an irony for me, me in that case. You know, this this young girl... Um, people will remember the footage just going about her business innocently um, uh, is murdered by this individual and for many weeks we don't know um, where she is we haven't found her Uh, uh, again tragic circumstances that the you know the family must have been going through and you know our hope was that this would resolve in a positive way and that we would find her and we reunite her with her family and unfortunately that that wasn't to happen but I think that is just one of the cases that really grabbed the media at the time um and and became front and central and one of the things that you're trying to do or what I'm trying to do when when I do that is trying to leave the SIO to get on with their job you know and um in that case, you know the SIO did some murder, uh, did some media at the start. It then went to the uh, reviewing superintendent, and then it was getting more and more. and I took over the media at that stage, but to hopefully give them some space to allow them to do their investigation, uh, Ollie. and I was incredibly lucky to have those individuals uh, in in place. But um, because it went on, and because she wasn't found very quickly what turns to help and support and engagement can quickly turn to why haven't you resolved this and why haven't you found it And, and what are you doing and so i think the job of gold really is to try and allow the investigators to do their job to make sure they've got the appropriate resources and and there was a huge search um hundreds and hundreds of individuals from forces up and down the country assisted in that search um and you know very sadly i think it was about five six weeks later we we found we found her body and that media event you're talking about was me at i think 6 a.m in the morning at scotland yard uh breaking the devastating news to people um we, we, which 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 obviously is difficult but you know nothing like what what the family are going through and what and what they're feeling but you know one of my reflections from that case we often hear about you know uh, community confidence and, you know, communities helping the police. I mean, the community in Ealing um, where she lived with her family was amazing. And the way that they supported the investigation, wanted to help with searches. I walked around the scene where she went missing. Um, there were yellow ribbons everywhere um, for her. And, um, you know, just a, a real outflow of um, support and shock but wanting to help and wanting to contribute to the investigation and and bring information. And I knew when I delivered sort of those messages outside the old Scotland Yard, um, for a lot of people who'd been really actively involved in the case and wanting to find her, particularly, obviously, all her school friends and and everything like that, it was a real, real tragic moment. Um, And uh, that was the start of me really appealing, this is now a murder investigation, and we need your help, the public's help, um, to resolve this.
0: With such complex matters and with obviously quite a lot of pressure on your shoulders as gold in terms of the questions being asked of why haven't you found her who's being held accountable for this where is your inquiries why is something taking so long there are a lot of stresses for you to absorb there are a lot of stresses for you to try and manage at this point you know you've got family at home how do you how do you separate quite an intensive work environment to family life in terms of being able to have conversation to be able to debrief as much as you possibly can without saying too much to friends and family because Mm. they're very important in terms of the support network that they provide you to be able to do such amazing work that you are they're almost sometimes the unsung heroes in my view
1: I, I absolutely agree with you and I think every operational cop probably has a family behind them that um you know probably deserve a commendation or an award for their support to allow that individual to come to work and and operate and you know it's a 24-7 job and I'm or I would be at home and I was you know at home that evening at the news broke in the evening and I was on the phone to my media teams overnight with a plan what are we going to do talking to the SIO who's obviously dealing with the family making sure that you know the family are aware and understand and with you know and I mentioned about FLOs and how important family liaison officers are they're obviously working with the family and we're trying to get everything ready for the morning because we knew the world's media were around that crime site and would be reporting and seeing our activity so we're we're trying to let everyone know what's going to happen, and we're trying to get the information out there in an orderly manner before you know it, it breaks in different places. And you know, you 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 talk to your family, um, but you you know you don't want in the details. in this this case were were, were so horrific. You, you know, you don't want to bring them out at home, um, uh, but but they know what you're going through, and they can hear it. You know, they hear you on the phone. They know that you're getting up in the middle of the night, and you're gonna talk to someone that you've left at four o'clock in the morning um, but but having that support from them allowing you to do that is is absolutely invaluable moving moving forwards and um, I off I you know I used to do um, commendation ceremonies for my officers and things like that and I I thought it was so important when when the families came with them to collect their commendation really I was talking more to the families than the officer I, I know that may sound a bit negative but I'm really wanting to say thank you for them. For allowing them to let these officers come to work, operate in the way they do, and for picking up the pieces often and and you know dusting them down and allowing them to come back and be a fully functioning police officer the next day, and it's it's probably you know we give we give a long service medal to officers. I've often felt we should probably give something to family members as well. You know,
0: your move out of the metropolitan police to Hampshire and the Isle of Wight Constabulary as the deputy to the then chief Andy Marsh who's now head of College of Policing you know a very different force in terms of the size scale and budgets the, you know the budget of Hampshire could it may not be too much bigger than some large boroughs in London in terms of the expenditure That must be a huge difference in terms of trying to manage all of that equally trying to make some difficult decisions and supporting chief in running the organization
1: yeah it was a it was a real learning curve and um I had always wanted to see what life was like outside of London, because I do do appreciate that in some ways London is very different and it becomes a bit of a a bubble there. Um, So I was really pleased I got a chance to work with Andy, someone who I really admired and it was good working with him. But unfortunately, it was a period of austerity and Hampshire was was not a particularly well funded force. Um, and so some really difficult decisions needed to be made and I arrived in the middle of that and as the deputy you are responsible for transformation and change Um, and so you know everyone will tell you their bit of the business is really important and there's not an opportunity or room for cuts but ultimately you've got to make um, some difficult decisions which we made there as a team together Um, and I, I learned so much from that particularly managing areas again away from the operational policing side but like our digital strategy our command and control strategy you know working with our um legal services etc and you're responsible for all those issues um but i but i hope they didn't think that i left london made the force a lot smaller and went 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 back again but um it, it it was um it really opened my eyes actually and you know um just the cops, when I would go out with the cops in in Hampshire, um, often, particularly in the New Forest, there's no backup or support for miles and miles and miles. You know, they are on their own and they've really got to use their communication skills to the fore to manage incidents before, you know, before help can come. So um, really impressive to see individuals in that environment as, you know, as opposed to London, where probably help is a is a fair bit closer you know uh, in comparison, but um it it definitely made me a better police officer experience in policing then both inside and outside of london
0: and then two thousand and sixteen this lateral back into London, as we were talking about off air probably missed London a little bit in terms of sort of it being somewhere you 'd been for so long that obviously naturally you 're going to gravitate back there eventually, and you lateral back into the met as d a c in two thousand and sixteen and 2018, you take or well, between 2018 and 2023, when your career sort of wrapped up, you're in charge of specialist crime, and you know you're you're overseeing on behalf of the MPs at the the National Police Chiefs Council. You're looking at county lines, you're looking at knife crime, and you're looking at ultimately the the management of covert human sources and that human source net that human source network across forces. Very significant portfolios, particularly the knife crime and the county lines issue because it's had such a significant impact on families and communities right across London and in the home counties how do you you know that's coming towards the tail end of your career you know that, that must be incredible portfolios to take on and to oversee and to manage and have real impact you know you are a very proactive senior officer often seen out on the streets with your teams looking and overseeing operations was it something that you were very keen to take part in
1: we see very quickly small issues becoming big issues we see social media being used where some of these offenses are are glamorized and people are provoked into reprisals i think those are some of the reasons about why this is happening officers from the homicide teams are working around the clock to bring justice to families and to protect our communities the increased police presence has made a difference with officers conducting more than two and a half thousand stop and searches in the last three days alone. To give some idea of the scale of our activity around knife crime, in the last 12 months, we have seized thousands of weapons by utilizing stop and search. However, we are not complacent. And I would appeal to the public to contact the police if they are aware of anyone carrying a knife. If you are not comfortable about speaking directly to the police, Please do contact Crime Stoppers, where you can provide information anonymously. By doing this, you could save a life. Whilst enforcement of the law is an important part of our activity in London, we are undertaking an enormous amount of work within schools and across communities Try and prevent young people within the, the metropolitan police during the we period of lockdown we 've used it as an opportunity the to office, really target our drug dealers who are dealing in county lines. We have drug. seen them change some of the ways that they are doing that, so we 've seen a movement away from public transport with the restrictions around movement and perhaps more into cars, which provides more opportunities for us and actually, in terms of our young missing people, people who sometimes are exploited and used within county lines we've actually seen quite a significant drop in the number of missing person episodes. One issue that we need to monitor very closely is as the lockdown restrictions are lifted and professionals are able to have more contact with children we might get more reports of of missing people. But at the moment they are significantly down when we compare them to the same time last year. The County Lines is is a distribution network for drug dealing and the people who run the lines, they focus on intimidation and fear and our absolute focus within the Met on tackling county lines has been through Operoche, where we've seen, if we look for the last five months, we've arrested hundreds of line holders, we've had hundreds of charges and we are going to continue to bear down on those individuals who leave a trail of misery and mayhem behind them. Um, they're our absolute number one focus as we focus on violence. So, so what we've decided to do through Operoche is go to the top of the line, go to the... I, um, I I really enjoyed my national portfolio. So, you know, my, my day job was serious and organised crime in London. Um, and I had an amazing team of people to, to help me with that. But also as a chief officer, it's really important that you try and take control of the national portfolios. And at the time uh, when I took over the county lines, um, it was, you know, it was topical. It was in the media. It was in the press. There were thousands of lines reported running across the UK and the real issue with it all was the violence Ollie um, and you know for those individuals who don't know too much about county lines it's where you had gangs in the cities suddenly realise that actually it's a lot easier for me to jump on a train or put a young person on a train and exploit them and have them travel to the a coastal town or to a, a small town elsewhere a more rural location and take over the drugs market. The problem was when they got there to take over the drugs market, there was normally a lot of violence. And so, um, it, it, you know, it was really impacting across the whole of the UK and, um, you know, I and my team were determined with people across the country to try and do something about it. I must say I was lucky at that time, the government were prepared to resource it and put money into it. And so we set up three sort of County lines teams, one in London, one in Birmingham, one in Liverpool, um, And uh, we worked, they were the exporting cities where the lines were coming out of, but those three areas worked incredibly hard um, with the importing forces, you know, where the lines were going to, um, to try and take down those lines. And it, it, you know, it certainly made me reflect, you know, towards the end of my career, how important data is. There's an explosion of data and digital. And if we're going to solve crime, And we're going to solve serious organized crime. How we harness that, how we harness that data, how we search it and how we extract information and evidence from it is so critical moving forward because the amounts of data are only going to increase. But, you know, we found a good way of being able to identify the line holder, the person behind the line who caused all the misery, who kept the profits, who exploited the young person. And working with forces across the country, we were able to identify them, attribute the number to them and then do enforcement immediately. So warrants through the door, arrest them and charge them. And, um, you know, we we really did focus on that. And uh, I think it just shows and it sort of made me reflect to moving forward in terms of dealing with crime and particularly serious organized crime, our understanding of data and digital and harnessing that power. And using it as evidence against these individuals is going to be critical going going forwards. And you know, I think in about three years we closed. If I just look at London, I think we closed about one and a half thousand lines. Um, made nearly three thousand arrests, and the important point was charge people. We were charging these line holders with drug king, so that they were going to prison on in in, in large numbers. And Obviously, the other side of that was trying to safeguard the young people who were who were being exploited and um, being used to run these lines and often bullied by gangs into doing it. So, it you know, towards the end of my career, it was something I got I got really passionate about and um, had a huge amount of support from across the country. I've got to say, you know, the work that they did in Merseyside was amazing. You know, they were focusing on lines in North Wales and maybe up to Scotland. Most of the lines in London were around London and of course West Midlands were, we're looking at that Midlands region but um, a real team effort to try and make a difference and, and stop the violence.
0: You have been the recipient of the QPM, probably one of the few to receive it before um, her late Queen Elizabeth II passed away. That must be an incredible honour in terms of receiving that award in terms of the work that you've done over just over 30 years of policing a proud day to look back on and reflect
1: yeah incredibly incredibly proud uh moment and something you don't expect and um you know I do I do realize I am incredibly lucky to to get that award because it's probably for things like we've just been talking about county lines but as I've talked throughout this whole thing um policing is 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 a is a team game and uh, if you don't have the team around you, you, you don't have success. And I, I love the day and I really enjoyed the day. And, you know, I wish I wish my dad could have um, been around to see that because I know I know he, he would have enjoyed it as well. But I like to think he was looking down when I picked it up. Um, um, but, yeah, a, a great day for me. And I'm I'm you know, really grateful for all the support I had from everyone to be able to do what I could do because I couldn't do it without, you know, the people around me.
0: And you've obviously departed from policing. Were you ready to leave? Was it the right time for you to step away and to pursue maybe opportunities in the private sector? I,
1: I think so. And, you know, one of the most important things in policing is probably around succession planning and a new generation of leaders coming through. Um, and I love policing, and I still do, but I think the time was right for me. You you, you know when, when, when probably it's the right time. And, um, you know, I went to speak to the commissioner and... Um, um, you know, really pleased that, that, you know, he, he gave me my exit interview and came to my leaving do and had a chat and, um, other, other commissioners as well. And it was, it was the right, it was the right time for me. And I, I always sort of, I did that degree in economics many, many years ago. And I sort of you know, how would I get on in the private sector? And I'm taking my first fumbling steps outside of policing, Ollie. And, uh, Uh, trying to to make success of that and you know uh, hopefully that will go well for me in the years to come
0: so obviously um you're, you're you're out of the police now is there do you never say never to a return in policing things change quite dramatically i've spoken to some incredible people That have left policing, but with what I consider to be still lots to give, I suppose the one that comes to mind last year was um, Neil Basu, sort of a formidable police leader in terms of his capabilities and what he could do, I think, going forward for the law enforcement community. Equally yourself, incredible experience, which has departed and left the Met. You know, if there was an opportunity that presented itself, you know, is that door possibly slightly still open for you to make a return?
1: Um, well, firstly, I, I can see Neil would, would, would definitely make a big difference if he, if he, if he comes back. And um, um, I, I think he's certainly got the energy and, and, and commitment to do that. I, I think at the moment I'm, I'm focusing on other things, Ollie, in, in all honesty, because, I've, you know, 30 years is quite a long time and I, I enjoyed it. And at the moment, my aspirations are, are elsewhere to see how I do. But someone told me once, never say never, but um, uh, not, not in the short term
0: been absolutely fascinating to listen to just over an hour and 20 minutes of conversation of 30 years of policing and and your time across the met and your short stint in hampshire as a deputy chief constable so thank you ever so much for your service the work you've done and the positive impact you've had on communities throughout your life in terms of policing Uh, equally thank you ever so much to your family for the sacrifices they've made in supporting you to get you to where you are today i think it's an incredible achievement and we look forward to seeing what is around the corner for you with, uh, with, with, with big announcements in the private sector. It's all very, very exciting. So thank you for joining me on the podcast.
1: Thanks, Ollie. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks very much.
1: This podcast
0: is brought to you by the Public Safety Foundation. The Public Safety Foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the UK the safest place to live, work, and raise a family. This crime-fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to. Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk. Protect and Serve is an independent podcast hosted, produced, and edited by Oliver Lawrence.